Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. As we were preparing this episode, I was thinking about a story that a meditation teacher friend of mine once told me. I'm not going to name him because I didn't actually ask permission to tell the story, but the gist of it was that my friend was on a retreat doing walking meditation, you know, walking super slowly and trying to be mindful, and he noticed how after each step, he was assessing his own performance. Did I do a good job with that one? Was I awake for the whole step, etc.? As I recall the story, my friend broke down and wept when he suddenly realized that he had spent basically his whole life engaged in compulsive self-evaluation. If that sounds familiar, welcome to the human condition. I think many, if not all of us, have a nonstop ambient thought track, or you might call it a self-directed diss track, running through our skulls of, how am I doing? How do I look? Why did I say that thing? Am I running behind? What do other people think of me? And blah, blah. How did we get this way? And what do we do about it? My guest today has thought a lot about this and has a ton of practical answers, including the notion that we should lean into our insignificance. Many of us growing up being told how special we were, but my guest argues that the words, you're not special, constitute extremely good news. Ron Siegel is an assistant professor of psychology, part-time at Harvard Medical School. He's a board member at the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. He also has a private clinical practice in which he works with low-income children and families and treats adults with chronic pain and other stress-related disorders. And he is the author of a new book called The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary. In this conversation, we talk about his contention that we did not evolve to be happy. We talk about why we self-evaluate so much. We talk about the downsides and upsides of this self-assessment, strategies for dealing with our often irrational self-grading criteria, including mindfulness, self-compassion, and gratitude. And we'll talk about what Ron means when he uses the phrase, leaning our ladder against the right wall. Heads up, if you've got kids around, this conversation includes brief references to mature topics, including sex and addiction. We'll get started with Ron Siegel right after this. But first, some uh, BSP, blatant self-promotion. Just to say real quick, don't forget to check out danharris.com, my new website where you can sign up for my newsletter, which I haven't been promoting that hard because we've been uh, honing it in the background, but um, now I really feel good about it. And uh, it's a place where I sum up the key learnings for me from the week's episodes and also make a bunch of cultural recommendations, whatever books and TV shows and movies I'm enjoying right now. Go check it out, danharris.com. We also have a new merch store where you can buy 10% Happier gear and also uh, some gear festooned with my profanity-laced slogans, danharris.com. Meanwhile, over on the 10% Happier app, from Monday, May 13th to Sunday, May 19th, we're going to be celebrating World Meditation Week with a whole series of free meditations available right there on the app. Every day, something new and unique designed to help beginners and seasoned meditators. And because we're so excited about it, we're going to be offering 40% off the subscription price until the end of May. Head over to 10percent.com slash 40. That's 10% spelled out, dot com slash 40 to get started. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. 
Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Ron Siegel, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You tell an interesting story that you got interested in the subject of self-evaluation in a kind of humbling way because you realized that even after all these years of therapy and meditation and professional development, you were doing a ton of it. Can you say more about that? Yeah, you know, I was in my 60s and I started doing meditative practices when I was about 17 or 18. And I was interested in psychology as a college student and became a psychologist early in my life. So in my own therapy and certainly doing therapy with other people for many, many years. And you would think that meditative practices, especially the ones that I was doing, which derived from Buddhist traditions, have as their goal a lack of self-preoccupation and the ability to be present and not be attached to self-image or even be attached to pleasure over pain. And certainly Western psychotherapy, you'd think that a goal would be to have something like a coherent, secure sense of self where you're not going up and down regularly and not feeling insecure in countless situations. And yet if I was honest with myself, which I was from time to time, I realized that I was constantly going up and down. In fact, as a a good friend of mine put it, who's uh, similarly an experienced psychologist, he said, yeah, my appraisal of myself as a psychologist is only about as good as my last session. If it went well, I think I'm a brilliant clinician with years of experience and training. If it went poorly, I knew I should have gone into something else. This isn't my calling. And I was noticing that my own psyche was going through these constant fluctuations and at least a big chunk of the time, It was unpleasant because I was feeling bad or inadequate or like I hadn't lived up to some inner standard or outer standard that I had. And I was quite frequently stressed out trying to keep my self-esteem afloat, basically, trying to continue to feel good about myself. And a little reflection, I realized that I really wasn't alone in this, that virtually everybody that I was seeing as a client was struggling with something in some way related to this. Now, that could be 
because it was my issue and that's the issue I was seeing in them, of course. But I, and I had the sense that it was really there. And stepping back and looking at the culture at large, my God, the number of things that we're selling to one another with the promise that this will make you feel good about yourself, this will make you feel successful, this will make you feel popular, this will make you feel in some way like you're a winner rather than a loser or a good person rather than a bad person. Realize that this is water that we are all swimming in. You know, periodically I would have my doubts that it's just because I was picked last for teams in elementary school and wasn't very tough when it came to adolescence. But upon reflection, most of the time I I came to the conclusion that there's something universal about this and maybe it would be good to find some ways to work with it so that we could all suffer a bit less. I tend to agree with you on the universality. Why are we like this? Well, it's Darwin's fault. It's basically an accident of evolution, as I understand it. Many, many species, certainly all social mammals and certainly primates, are very concerned with hierarchies, largely dominance hierarchies. You know, who's going to have more resources? Who's going to have more access to things to take care of themselves and their kids? It's somewhat gendered in primate troops, where basically there are dominant males who associate with reproductively promising females. And there are certain females that get to be with those dominant males. And indeed, they get to generally reproduce more and their kids have a better shot at living. So if we think of how natural selection works, we could imagine that there were happy hominids holding hands, not concerned with dominance, not concerned with competing or being on top of any kind of heap, enjoying themselves and singing Kumbaya. However, they weren't the ones that got to reproduce quite as much as the ones that struggled for resources and got those resources. So we've developed a genetic proclivity to organize ourselves in this way. And the way it shows up in us as the monkeys with a little less hair and a little bit more intellectual sophistication is with concern over self-esteem, thinking, how am I doing? Which always includes a implicit comparison to others. Because if I think of myself as intelligent or attractive or kind or honest, or even for that matter, more spiritual and less concerned with self-esteem, implicitly I'm comparing myself to others and saying, how do I do compared to them? So this concern for where we are in the primate troop, which we share with so many different species, shows up in us as thoughts about, am I doing okay or not? And it seems that we are either feeling crummy about ourselves and trying desperately to come back to neutral or feeling good about ourselves and trying to hold on to that feeling to avoid feeling crummy about ourselves. You have said that humans did not evolve to be happy. Is the foregoing all the words you just uttered, is that what you mean by humans didn't evolve to be happy? Yeah, I mean, there are many examples of it, in fact, because the best we know from evolutionary science is that the brain evolved as an organ of survival, as all of our organs did, and that through natural selection, if there were certain qualities or propensities or skills or abilities that were going to help us to survive, well, those organisms that developed that, they were more likely to survive, so more likely to pass on their genes. Well-being is actually not particularly relevant to survival. 
and to reproduction. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute, what about all those stress-related disorders? What about the way in which being a type A personality means you're gonna have a heart attack at a young age? Well, that's true currently, but historically, it didn't really matter much because stress-related disorders tended to kill us after we had reached the age of reproduction. And so they're actually not that relevant in our genetic history. So what do we do about this? Ah, that's the big question. Well, for one thing, we start, I think, by being kind to ourselves about the whole thing, that we're not particularly troubled by this because there's something terribly wrong with us individually. This is indeed a quite universal problem, and we can take refuge in the fact that others are suffering from it. And I think of particular import that it's not a sign of our failure. We have a kind of mythology in, I think in American culture at least, that if we were really successful, if we were really good, if we were really winning, at these various games, we wouldn't feel any insecurity about it. We would just experience the joy of being a competent, lovable, good human being. And it's only people who have these weaknesses that suffer with this. And indeed, some people do suffer with it more than others. I mean, one can have crippling social anxiety where you feel anything I say, people are gonna judge me negatively. And that's worse than the run of the mill level of preoccupation with this. But realizing that Preoccupation with this is pretty universal. And if I discover it in my own consciousness, it doesn't mean that I'm particularly broken or particularly bad. I think that's an important place to start. Then we need some tools to work with it. I've spent a lot of my career teaching and working with mindfulness practices. I know that you've engaged with mindfulness practices and I imagine many of your listeners have as well. It's really important to be able to see each time we get caught in one of these self-evaluative moments. We're so engaged in it, and there's so much social support for the idea that if only you could be better, if only you could be more successful, you'd be more happy. We often don't notice ourselves going up and down. So kind of the first task is to begin to use our mindfulness practice or just paying attention to notice how often we go up and down, how often we feel either good about ourselves or not so good about ourselves. I'm here watching you as we do this podcast. And if you nod or smile, no pressure. But when you do, I start to feel this is going okay. Oh yeah, he understands. Oh, this is going to be meaningful to him and perhaps meaningful to his audience. If you're looking a little distracted, uh-oh, maybe it's not working. Maybe this is just me. Maybe this isn't such a good idea. As an example here and now of the sort of up and down in these kind of self-appraisals that are happening all the time. It's really helpful to catch ourselves in the act. It's also really helpful to begin to look at what are the particular criteria we each use to feel good about ourselves. Personally, okay, so I was picked last for sports teams in elementary school because I wasn't terribly coordinated, nor did I have a mom or dad who was uh, teaching me athletics very much. And that felt terrible, but words came easily to me and I was able to talk in class and have teachers like that. So I started leaning on the thought of I'm intelligent and articulate to float my boat and somehow get me through those painful moments in gym class. Starting to notice which of the qualities each of us has relied on to try to feel good about ourselves. And how does it feel when we're 
feeling validated about that when it's going well? And how does it feel when we fall, when it's not happening? To really get a sense of how all of this works. And one of the things that I like to explore with my clients or patients and is in the book I've recently written on this topic is looking at all the different realms we can get hooked on because we can get hooked on the level of what we're wearing, what we own, the whole conspicuous consumption realm of you know, trying to signal that we're somehow successful or likable or part of a certain group or something else. We do this every time we get dressed in the morning, we're sending out signals around this. For others, it's, you know, the social media realm, which amplifies this tremendously. Every time we get a like on social media, the Psychologists studying this say there's a little squirt of dopamine in the nucleus accumbens, which is the reward center of the brain that feels like, ah, yes, I'm okay. And it's the same part of the brain that's activated with cocaine, with sex, with gambling winnings. It's very easy to get addicted to this. So the first step is really observational. And then there are many other things that we can do that turn out to be antidotes to this. Can you say more about the basic blocking and tackling of how we can bring self-awareness to our self-evaluation so that we're not so owned by it? Well, let's start with having a mindfulness practice. So what is mindfulness practice? It usually involves picking a sensory object of awareness, such as the breath or the sensations of the feet on the ground or perhaps sounds, and bringing our attention to it. And every time the mind wanders off into the thought stream, gently and lovingly bringing it back to the sensation. And in the process of doing that, we develop a few skills, a few abilities. One of them is we attune to what's happening in the body. We start to notice really what's happening moment to moment physiologically when we're interacting with other people, when we're doing different activities, we notice pleasant and unpleasant sensations. And that can be very, very useful for tracking this. Because as it turns out, We can do a little exercise with it. I mean, I just invite our listeners right now and you, you know, think of a moment where you felt kind of good about yourself. You felt like you were doing a good job or people liked you or some quality that matters to you was being validated. And how did that feel in the body? And even play with exaggerating your posture a little bit. We sit a little bit taller or stand a little bit taller. You can feel it as a physiological state. And then I'm sorry to say, I invite you to imagine the opposite, you know, a time where you felt defeated or rejected or not good enough, where you weren't living up to your own standards or someone else's. And that kind of feeling of collapse, the tail between your legs, you know, we get shorter, our chest goes in. Now I'm exaggerating them right now as we talk about them, but these things happen in a very subtle way all throughout the day. And we can just use doing some formal mindfulness practice during some of the day where we follow the breath or do walking meditation, then sensitize us to start noticing this during the rest of our time. And that's enormously useful information. I will say from my own experience with this, as well as people that I've guided through this, it's a horrifying exercise. It could be subtle, but we may start to notice that there's some elevation or suppression, some boosts or crashes happening all day long. You know, every email can be an opportunity to either feel a little bit better about myself or a little bit worse about myself. Every text message can have the same effect. Oh gosh, I should have responded to them sooner. I feel like I'm a bad friend. Collapse. Oh, they really liked what I said the other day. 
rise, starting to monitor just how frequently this happens. Number one, it's scary, you know, and humiliating because we realize that we're kind of insane. But number two, it starts to give us a little bit of a space to observe this and maybe not fully identify with it and maybe realize that, oh gosh, you know, this roller coaster isn't me, even though, boy, it's a big part of my experience. Are you saying we should never feel good about ourselves or bad? No, not at all. I don't think this is going to stop happening, right? And there's certain utility to it, right? I mean, a person who has no shame, we say, oh, they're shameless. Well, that's a problem, right? There are many times where self-evaluation is useful. If my skills in anatomy never got past the Thanksgiving turkey, I probably shouldn't take up heart surgery. Not right now, not without some training. So self-evaluation in terms of what are our strengths and weaknesses, absolutely necessary. And we need to correct, right? We want to grow and get better at things. It's the differential valuing of ourselves, though. The thinking that because all I can do is carve a turkey and not very well. I'm inadequate compared to my friend who's a surgeon. That's the place where it's probably not very helpful. And it certainly causes a lot of suffering. And it's very interesting to notice which of our self-evaluations are relevant, useful information that we can use to be a good person in the world and engage in the world, and which ones are getting basically addicted to self-esteem boosts to ward off the pain of self-esteem collapses. And that dynamic, which speaking as one human being, can be pervasive in a life, that dynamic, I think, causes us a great deal of unnecessary suffering. But it's not going to go away. Maybe this is a good analogy. We have an evolutionary propensity to like fat and sugar. This is why donuts and their equivalent across cultures are so very popular, because in our historical past, fat was associated with nutrition, as was sugar. Nowadays, it's associated with early death. But it was once associated with nutrition. So I don't think I'm ever going to evolve to a point where seeing a donut or maybe even a more sophisticated version of a donut isn't going to rouse some feeling of desire in me. It will. I may evolve to a point where I can choose to not always eat it, especially if I've already had one to maybe not eat the second one. And I think that this is similar, that we're going to go up and down, but we can begin to get it that just structuring our lives to try to maintain the highs and avoid the lows may not be the most nutritious way to structure our psychological lives. So there are structural issues here you know, like, how are you going to live your life? Mm -hmm. But then there's also the mindfulness as a moment-to-moment -moment way to surf this stuff. Those seem to be separate endeavors, related, related but separate. They are. They inform one another. One of the things that we learned from mindfulness practice, and particularly from observing how it applies to this self-esteem roller coaster, is we start to see why we never win why this doesn't actually work very long. There are basically two principles. One of them is something that we might call narcissistic or self-esteem recalibration. Something that floated our boat once no longer floats our boat because we've gotten habituated to it. And we can think of this in our own lives, you know. Remember what it was like to figure out how to put those multicolored, donuts in different sizes onto a pole so that they formed a cone, right? You know, many of us played with such a toy as a toddler. And it's like, hey, I got it. I know how to do that. That felt like an accomplishment. At the moment, if you or I were to do it, it might not float our boat in quite the same way. 
Same thing with learning to walk, riding a bicycle, graduating from high school. You know, they're having a first boyfriend or girlfriend. Oh my gosh, what that does for our feelings about ourselves, or perhaps getting our first job or owning a car or renting an apartment. All of these things, they work for a while and then we habituate to it. I often teach groups of psychotherapists and I've had workshops on this topic. And I'll often say, Virtually all of you worked really hard to get an advanced degree and then to get a professional license. And it felt like a big deal. You felt really good when you accomplished that goal. How many of you woke up this morning feeling, I feel great about myself. I have my professional license. And everybody starts laughing, right? Except for one newly minted psychotherapist who raises their hand and says, why is everybody laughing, right? Because they haven't habituated to it yet. So this exists across everything, no matter what it is. I don't mean to make too many assumptions, but I bet when you got this podcast going and it became popular, which it has for good reason, you felt pretty good about that. I bet there are mornings where you could wake up and not feel so great about yourself, even though you've got this great podcast, just as an example. Yes, 100%, 100%, 100%, well over 10%. (laughs) Okay. So we're all subject to this. The other problem, the other reason why this is so unreliable as a pathway to well-being is Newton. You know, what goes up comes down. So let's say we're really good at something. Let's say you're an Olympic gold medalist and you actually win the gold. What are the chances you're going to do it again in four years, in eight, in 12? And ultimately, we all face a really big self-esteem crash. You know, the scene in the nursing home where there's a woman in the wheelchair having difficulty holding her saliva in, and somebody says, oh yeah, she was a really well-known nuclear physicist. Well, you know, whatever these building blocks are that we're relying on to feel good about ourselves, they're time-limited. I mean, everything's time-limited, but if they're somewhat more reliable building blocks, wouldn't it be nice to be discovering what they are? So our mindfulness practice actually helps us to see that this isn't working. Without mindfulness practice, we might just stay addicted and we might just go on, well, the last time I felt crummy about myself, what did I do? I accomplished something and I felt better about myself. So I'll keep doing that. And we don't actually notice how we habituate to our accomplishments and how what goes up comes down because everything's impermanent. So the more we can notice the reality of how this works, the greater our opportunity is to not be so addicted to it. Coming up, Ron explains how we can become less preoccupied with ourselves, why our inner critics grading criteria make so very little sense, and how practices such as self-compassion and gratitude can get us off the self-esteem roller coaster. That's his term. And that's coming up right after this. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The 
The weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. You said that there might be healthier building blocks upon which to rest our whatever self-esteem, self-worth, sense of self, what would those be? Yeah, well, interestingly, they're not so much about bolstering our sense of self or our self-worth, but they're more about being somewhat less preoccupied with ourselves, period. And one way to be less preoccupied with ourselves, period, is to be in relationship with others, is to make safe, real, intimate connections with others. A phrase that I'll often suggest to my clients around this is try making a connection instead of an impression. So often we go into some new interpersonal situation, particularly if it's a high stakes one, like a job interview or meeting the future in-laws, or for that matter, going on a podcast. And my first impulse is, how am I going to make a good impression? Well, knowing where this leads and knowing how this just feeds the addiction, I might shift and say, how might I connect a little bit to this person? Look, part of why I'm asking you questions here and there is I kind of want to connect with you because I know that if I feel a sense of safe connection with you, I'm going to feel like, where are we? Just for this moment, but where are we? And if I feel like, where are we? This whole enterprise is going to start losing some of its intensity. When I'm with a good friend and we're talking honestly, and particularly when we're able to share our foibles and say, oh gosh, you know, I fell on my face here. I fell on my face there. That was a mess. When I'm in that situation, all of this preoccupation starts to relax. It's not because my sense of self is so different. Well, it is, but instead of being so concerned with me, I'm part of a we in this moment. And that sense of interconnectedness is a very, very powerful antidote to this. And it's very interesting because it's actually bi-directional. Connecting to others safely softens our preoccupation with self-evaluation. 
And to the extent to which we can soften our preoccupation with self-evaluation, we're actually freed up to connect to others. When I'm focused on me and what are you thinking about me, I can't connect with you because I'm showing off in some way. I'm trying to, you know, posture in some way that I think you'll like, and then I'm not really with you. Joseph Goldstein, the meditation teacher who I quote all the time, says that one way to think about enlightenment is the reduction in self-centeredness. We like to be around those people. Absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting when we're with somebody who is narcissistically vulnerable and is compensating for that by puffing themselves up in various ways. At least my experience is I wind up feeling more inadequate, more insecure. My competitive juices get going. It activates this whole system of where are we each in the primate troop? And how do I compare to you? When I'm with someone like Joseph, for example, who, by the way, I'm honored, was my first retreat teacher back in the mid-70s when they opened IMS. When I'm with somebody like Joseph, who's really done a lot of work on himself and does not do a lot of this, I immediately relax. Because I feel like, oh, this whole domain is less active, is less important, and it's much easier to be a we filled with foibles, filled with inadequacies, but okay being together. So it, it, it is very interesting that way. Let me go back to a few things you said earlier. You talked about this self-esteem roller coaster. I think you said there is no roller coaster or the whole thing is an illusion in some way. Well, the whole thing is an illusion in the sense of how do we construct the whole idea that I'm better than you or you're better than me based on what, right? That actually becomes very interesting. Another one of the antidotes to this is let's just examine cognitively for a moment how we construct our sense of being good or bad. Well, first of all, there's a question of where did we come up with the criteria? Like, where did we learn that Whatever it is, being smart, winning at sports, being a kind person, having more friends, being a selfless meditator. Where did we learn that that is the criteria which is relevant and that's the one I should go for? And most of us have many of these, but you know, it's interesting. We get it from peer groups. We get it from messages from the culture. Sometimes we get it from parents or teachers. It is very interesting to see where we picked up on these things. Another interesting thing to examine is things that were relevant once and aren't so relevant anymore. Like it used to matter to me in elementary school what my skills were like in kickball. I'm happy to say not so much anymore because they weren't very good. So some things do gain or lose relevance at different points in time. When I was worried about kickball, I wasn't worried about whether other people will think of me as wise and compassionate. Now I worry whether people will think about being as wise and, wise and compassionate. So it's interesting to see how it changes. And something that I find absolutely fascinating and my clients have found really useful is to look at what's the timeline for the grading system? Like, is this a cumulative grade point average since birth? Is it only since adulthood? In other words, how long ago did I have to be a good person to be able to still feel like I'm a good person? How long ago did I have to feel like I was intelligent to still feel like I'm intelligent? How long ago did I have to be sexually attractive to feel sexually attractive? It's, it's so interesting how this works because past positive experiences don't have that much staying power. You know, we recalibrate and then it's like, you know, I could have been a good person for a lot of my 
my life. And then I do something where I hurt my wife's feelings. And boy, I feel like a really bad husband. And it's really quite vivid. So the grading system is like, you can't even accumulate a decent GPA. You're constantly being tested. And realizing that, you know, just seeing how it works, like where did I get the criteria and how do I maintain this system of being good enough or not? The more we look at it, the crazier it seems and the more the roller coaster actually does seem like it's an illusion, but it's a very powerful illusion. I think the words you used were the roller coaster is not me. Uh, And that is really interesting, right? One of the fruits of mindfulness practice as I understand it, and I think as Joseph would describe it, is to really see how we construct a sense of self. It's so interesting, the history of social psychology. There's a guy by the name of Cooley, who is often called the father of social psychology, who round about 1900 coined the term the looking glass self. And this was the word looking glass as the old word for a mirror. And he said, what happens is we go through life seeing ourselves reflected in others, basically, whether they're smiling kindly upon us or scowling critically. And we create this sense of who we are based on that cumulative experience. One of the things that happens through mindfulness practice, and I think good introspection generally, is we start to see, oh my God, the whole thing's constructed. It's constructed out of these reflections. And Lord knows the reflections say something about the other person as well as us, right? My old friend, Dr. Mark Epstein, whose work I suspect you're familiar with, was on the show recently. And well, he made this observation in the book he wrote recently, The Zen of Therapy, that we all have this kind of maybe subconscious discomfort with this suspicion that we're not real. On some level, whether we thought about it consciously or not, we we have a sense of our own insubstantiality. And as a consequence, he argues, we have these two seemingly contradictory responses. One is a tendency toward defensiveness. Another is a tendency toward self-puffery. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, it does make sense to me. I mean, there's a way that if we look clearly at consciousness, we don't find a me there. A very simple exercise that we can do takes less than a minute. And let me invite you and our listeners to do it if you like. Just close your eyes and just quietly, silently, slowly count to five. And now let's do that again and see if you can identify where in the body is the counting occurring? Where are the numbers happening? So do it again, try to see where the numbers are happening. And next, where is the me? the volitional entity, if you will, the I that is doing the counting, right? Where's the me that's doing the count? Obviously we're counting. Where's that me that's doing the counting? Try counting to five again, slowly. And now where's the me or the I or the witness that's experiencing the counting? So try counting to five again and find out where's that me that's experiencing it? And you can open your eyes again. It's a little weird, isn't it? I mean, it's a cool exercise. I've done others like it, not this specific one, but exercises like this bump you up against what may be the greatest mystery, which is consciousness. (laughs) We know that we are knowing stuff, but we can't find what it is that is doing the knowing. Exactly. And yet, 
we're constantly thinking, I'm constantly thinking that Ron's either good or bad, smart or dumb, successful or not. But where's this Ron that is being evaluated in this way? It's the me that's thinking and talking, right? But where is that? So I think, yes, I think Mark is onto something here. And one of the things that can help loosen this up for us is to the extent that we can have moments of experiencing ourselves as simply an organism unfolding, where the narrative about me, mine, and I, and how I'm doing is just seen as this narrative, we're much freer. This happens to me all the time. Like right now, as we're doing the podcast, it's fluctuating, right? There are moments in which, yeah, I'm concerned with how I'm doing and how it sounds. And there are other moments where the words are simply happening. I couldn't tell you who is talking exactly. You ask a question and the mind, whatever that is, responds and words come out and they flow. And my sense of Ron is almost a sense of simply observing while participating in this organism doing its thing. And it's nice the way I saw a chipmunk at the bird feeder a little earlier this morning. And I thought, how cool watching this chipmunk be a chipmunk. Not evaluative, not nicer chipmunk than others, prettier fur than others, none of that. Just the unfolding of the chipmunk is itself marvelous and wonderful, but not in an evaluative sense. And I think at moments, we can live this way. There are times where it's just kind of flowing and the organism is engaged and there isn't a lot of evaluative soundtrack going on. And I love those moments. It's a delight to do whatever I do, whether it's teaching, the dishes, whatever, because finally, finally, I have a a bit of space where I'm not tormented trying to keep my self-esteem afloat. And what would you say the rest of us could do to make ourselves more prone to these flow states? Well, I think there's a lot of things we can do. One thing is to have a mindfulness practice. I think that helps provide a substrate, if you will, and a set of skills that are helpful. Another thing is to really try to make a connection, not an impression. This helps a lot because almost all of the situations where we're struggling, at least where I'm struggling, I'm struggling because I'm imagining another evaluating me. I'm imagining you or our listeners thinking about how I'm doing, or even when I'm writing, I'm imagining my audience evaluating me. And if that's about, I'm trying to craft what I say in order to be useful, fine, that's wonderful. But if it's mostly about, what do you think of me? Not so useful. So part of it is kind of monitoring this and thinking about all the different things we do in our lives, whether it's parenting, whether it's the work we do to earn a living, whether it's being a child to someone else, whether it's being a friend, whether it's going for a walk in the woods, what all the things we do, can we notice what it feels like to do it in a way which kind of feels like the organism is unfolding versus doing it with the self-consciousness. You know, Masters and Johnson, the sex researchers, coined this term, the inner spectator. What did they discover in their research on sex? Well, other animals don't seem to have a big inner spectator when it comes to sex. And as a result, they don't have a lot of sexual dysfunctions. But we, when we're engaged in sexual activity, very often are involved in, how am I doing? And ironically, the inner spectator gets in the way of the organism unfolding as 
it naturally would. And it happens with sex. It happens with public speaking where, oh my gosh, my voice is shaking. Oh no, how do I get my voice to stop shaking? And you lose your train of thought and you can't do it. It happens with going to sleep. I've got to get a good night's sleep. I'm going to be on 10% happier tomorrow. I want to be well rested. So start worrying about getting enough sleep. So something else we can do is just notice, right? Like notice when this inner spectator is prominent and think, what are the ways I could do everything I do? in a way that's more about engagement, because typically we can find ways that work. Something else, and this really comes from, you know, my background as a clinical psychologist. When I think of what makes particular self-esteem or self-evaluative moments poignant for people, it's often because they relate to earlier moments that were painful in some way. So if I've had the experience, as many people have, many of my clients have, of feeling rejected, let's say even in my family of origin, and it's most painful, I think, when it happens there, then I'm going to go through life and I'm going to be reading the tea leaves, reading other people's facial expressions. Are you rejecting me? Are you not rejecting me? If I felt inadequate in some way about my mathematical ability or my verbal ability or something, I'm going to be going through life reading indicators of either having math skills or not, or being verbally fluent or not. When we have self-esteem crashes, it's almost always related to some previous experience that was really painful. Some of the work we need to do is when we're in a current situation and we feel our self-esteem plummeting, we feel ourselves having a crash, take a moment to reflect, what does this remind me of? What's this feeling? How is this feeling familiar? And for me, for example, when that's happening, let's say I've got, well, what the heck? I'll be honest about it. So I'm planning a workshop and, uh-oh, looks like it's going to be canceled because not enough people signed up. Ah, uh, ah, uh, deflation. Oh, I really like teaching workshops. Oh, this is the end of my career. Oh, yeah, I can get a little hysterical about these things. But, not, but nonetheless, there's an experience of deflation that we're going to have to cancel. Oh, no, it's because of COVID. Yeah, but people signed up for the other one. That, okay, so, so there's this moment of deflation. If I go inward and I say, okay, what does this remind me of? Well, it's interesting. I mean, for me, it's like, oh, there's that rejection from that girlfriend early on sitting there still kind of hurting. Oh, there's that experience with this group of kids at the bunk at summer camp where they were from a tough neighborhood. I wasn't. And I, I, you know, I kept trying to, you know, bolster myself and make it with them, but I couldn't. I start to realize that this hurt around the workshop is actually resonating with all of that. And we kind of have to do the psychological work of going back and revisiting all of those I'll use the word trauma advisedly here. These aren't necessarily big T traumas of horrible things happening, but the little things that are painful to us that happen in the course of a life that we push out of awareness because they were too painful at the time and we didn't want to feel that much pain. But now that we're in a latter situation, which in some way resonates with that, the pain's back. And in a sense, self-esteem challenges, these crashes become a wonderful opportunity to rework all of this. I have a friend and colleague, Michael Miller, he's a psychiatrist in the Boston area. And he once said to me, I know a lot of people that have been ruined by success, not that many that were ruined by failure. Because when we have a failure, sometimes it helps us to rework all of these past injuries, to revisit them. Yes, it's humbling, but also we heal it a little bit. 
when we go back to it. So one of the things we can all do is to, instead of scrambling for how do I build up my self-esteem again? How do I win again? How do I use each time that I fall flat as an opportunity to rework these past injuries so that maybe I'll be a little bit less vulnerable to it in the future and a little bit less addicted to having to boost my self-esteem to avoid the feeling of failure that reminds me of those earlier failures that I've never processed. So that's something else we can do. Another thing that we can do is practice self-compassion, as I mentioned. That is really, really helpful when we're having one of these crashes. Because when we have the crash, if we're not going to be addicted to puffing ourselves up, we're going to have to be able to tolerate crashes. And if we can in some way hold ourselves with a sense of, it's okay, sweetheart, this happens to everybody, we're going to be able to tolerate it. And I'm particularly interested in the difference between enhancing self-esteem as a pathway here and enhancing self-compassion. And if we think of this in child development, think of a moment where a parent is dealing with a child who's crestfallen. Let's say I'm a dad and let's say my daughter has come home and she didn't make the basketball team and she's crestfallen and she's feeling terrible. Now, if I thought that self-esteem was important and Lord knows there have been hundreds of programs to enhance kids' self-esteem, none of which have worked to make kids happier. But if I think self-esteem is important, I'm gonna say, oh, sweetheart, I know that's disappointing, but you know, you were really great on the math team you did fantastically at speech and debate last year. And in fact, you know, you're doing really well at tennis. So maybe you'll make the basketball team again next time, but you know, you're a terrific kid. If I was trying to teach my child self-compassion, I'd say, oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. That can be so painful. You know, I was into drama as a kid and I didn't make the school play. And when I didn't make the school play, I moped around for, I got to tell you, it was a few weeks I felt so defeated by it because I felt all inadequate and everything. It's so painful when we lose these things. I love you. Let me give you a hug. Very different way of working with it. It's really about how can we be with the pain of the fact that we win some and we lose some, and this is hard when it happens in life, but not reinforce the addiction to thinking the answer is, let me think of how I'm special and better than other people. And yet it's hard because we so often, you know, head off in that direction. So cultivating self-compassion, the ability to say, it's okay, sweetheart, there's a universality to this. We all have this experience of falling and being hurt. And let me hold your hand during this experience. I think that is super important. One other that I think that's really powerful is uh, trying to cultivate gratitude. Moments of gratitude are very interesting. The positive psychology literature is replete with stories about gratitude being the most powerful thing to practice in terms of feeling better in the world. Question I have is why? And I think I have an answer, at least it's a hypothesis. I think the reason why is number one, that when we're feeling grateful, we're grateful toward or for something. It actually connects us to something larger than ourselves. For some people, it's being grateful to God. For others, it's grateful to the universe. We're connected to something larger than ourselves. And the other thing is that in a moment of gratitude, we're not focused on desire, on this is what I need in order to be happier. This is what 
I need to feel better. We're actually appreciating what we already have. So it gets us out of the sort of deficit model and out of the model of feeling like we need something else. And I think that helps to really soften the whole self-esteem preoccupation as well. Those are just some greatest hits of tools that I think are helpful to us. Coming up, Ron explains what it means to lean your ladder against the right wall. He argues that we should embrace our insignificance. And he has a memorable lesson that involves the King of England from the year 1343. That's coming up after this break. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating, and it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15-20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. You've touched on this a little bit, but I do want to go back to the notion of success. You write about the failure of success. I think that's the name of a whole chapter. And one of the ideas you talk about in that chapter is something you call leading up against the right wall or having alternative aims. Can you hold forth on these notions? Sure. Joseph Campbell, who is a student of the world's mythologies and was very interested in wisdom traditions and what they have to teach us, he said, many people climb the ladder of success only to discover that it was leaning up against the wrong wall. And That seems to be true. I think what happens to us is we so easily become addicted to pursuing forms of success that make us feel good about ourselves temporarily. And the reason for this is because as we were talking earlier and kind of embodying what it feels like mindfully to have a self-esteem boost or self-esteem collapse, the boost feels so good 
compared to the collapse that feels so bad. And anytime that there's a big gap between something that feels really good and something that feels really bad, it's an opportunity for addiction. Crack cocaine, my understanding is, feels really, really good for a little while. Crack cocaine wearing off feels really, really bad for a while. And when there's that kind of gap, what do you want? I want more crack. And there are so many things that take this form, right? And I think, and my experience is, that self-esteem boosts take this form. So we wind up leaning up against the wrong wall, climbing the ladder of success, thinking that if only I can be more special, more famous, more rich, more liked, that's going to work for us. And the problem is it does work for us for a little while each time, which is what continues to convince us that this is what we need to do. So it's not the wrong wall in the sense of necessarily morally wrong. And, you know, maybe it's not hurtful to others. Maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. But it's wrong in terms of not being sustainable, really not being a path that's going to work in the long run. And it's a path where it's going to be subject to the hedonic treadmill, right? Where we're going to need more and more and more just to experience the same level of well-being that we had before. You know, I once had a client, it was early in my practice. He came in and he had just sold his defense contracting business for $30 million cash. And he kept using that expression, $30 million cash. And I kept imagining the wheelbarrow. You know, what is that? You know, what's that like? And he was kind of bereft because he had actually spent his whole adult life in international arms sales. And the question was, now what? I was thinking, oh, this is so exciting. This is going to be an interesting psychotherapy. This is going to be about the meaning of life because clearly he has all one could need materially. And I'm, you know, trying to inch the conversation in that direction. And he's not at all interested in that. And as often happens when a therapist has a clear idea of what they'd like the therapy to be about, we weren't, we weren't connecting very well. And then maybe three or four sessions in, he comes in and he looks transformed. Instead of looking kind of anxious and despondent, he looks energized and happy. And I said, what happened? And he said, I've just come up with a business plan by which I think I could parlay my $30 million into a $50 million enterprise. And I think if I could earn 50 million, I'd feel like I had succeeded. And you're laughing, I laugh. How absurd. But we all do this. We all do this in other ways where we think, oh, just the next increment. That's going to do it for me. That's going to make me feel better. I'm going to go for that next increment. And this isn't a polemic against you know, achievement or working hard at things. But thinking that the next increment is going to work for us, probably not. Because once you're at 50, you're going to need something more than that. So it's really a suggestion to notice what we're hooked on and really evaluate which of those things are valuable, are sustainable, are in line with our values, and which of them are basically attempts to make the bad feeling go away by replacing it with another feeling of somehow winning or being good enough. So how do we find the right wall? How do we identify what you call alternative aims rather than just trying to get high on the roller coaster? Well, I think one good place to start is to examine our values, to ask what really matters to me. Sometimes this is constructed as an exercise. What would you want it to say on your tombstone? 
right? What matters? And interestingly, when we ask ourselves that, and when most people ask themselves that, the answer often is about connection. The answer often is, I want to be a good friend, a good parent, a good child, a good, good human being in the world. Sometimes it's about creativity. I want to use my talents to produce something useful, something interesting, something beautiful. We can also think of it as the right wall, as which aspects of our instinctual nature do we want to favor and cultivate? So there are many, many instincts that we have toward cooperation, toward sharing, toward justice. And I think that we can recognize that these instincts will flourish if we feed them some, if we actually try to act in a just way, if we actually try to share and be generous. And here, not so I can think I'm a good person being generous, although it's going to be part of it, but with that not being our main thrust, but because we get it, that living this way feels better, that it actually doesn't feel good to be constantly worrying about me, and it feels good to be connecting with other people in this way. You know, I'm talking about this like it's some discovery, but it's all the stuff that the world's religious traditions have been telling us for years would be where we should put our energies. It turns out that they're mostly right. All the cliches are true. As we vector toward the close here, I want to get you to talk a little bit about, you have a nice phrase, the joys of insignificance. Say more, please. Yeah. You know, it's not an accident that many of the world's religious and wisdom traditions have invited us to contemplate the fact that we're going to die. A lot of useful learning comes from that. There are so many people who have some kind of life-threatening experience where it reorients their values. They have this experience and suddenly they realize, oh gosh, all this energy that I was putting into building me up, that's not what really matters to me. That's not what's most important. And it comes in part from realizing that I'm not going to be here forever. And in fact, this whole enterprise, I'll put it in the first person, this whole enterprise of edifying Ron may be working against what is both most gratifying and most important. And if we can embrace the fact that this podcast someday, I don't know what'll happen, but digital media will change and there probably won't even be a way to listen to it. If we can embrace the fact that books I've written are going to decompose and go back to the earth in some way, that the same's going to happen to this body, there's a certain freedom that comes from that. There's a certain realizing that, oh gosh, all of this preoccupation with me and how am I doing is fundamentally quite silly. A little uh, question I have that I find helpful around this, which is, you know, do you know who the King of England was in 1343? And most people say no. And I say, I don't either. But in 1343, he was a really big deal. And everybody in England really knew who he was. Now, not so much, right? And this is so true. I haven't heard an argument against this. What if we actually lived each day as though it were so and thought, so what do I want to do with this day? You could branch off into nihilism when this happens. Oh, nothing matters, uh, you know, et cetera. But that's not actually mostly what happens. Mostly what happens is we start to lean more against the right wall. We start to think, you know, I'm not going to try to be so successful. I'm going to try to do something useful. You know, I've had moments writing a book 
well, you know, writing a book, there's all sorts of attachment to what are people going to think about the book and all of that, not to mention, you know, Amazon ratings. And sometimes, and this is a fruit of having written the book and thinking about this, sometimes I'm on a walk or something and I think, you know, I don't know how many people are going to read the book and I don't know how many people are going to like the book, but if this book is useful to even just a few people who can lighten up with this thing, and can actually live their life a little bit more insignificantly and feel more okay about being ordinary and connect a little bit more deeply with friends or family or, for that matter, the clerk in a store, wouldn't that be lovely? I'm not saying I always dwell there. I'm not saying I'm enlightened. But when I have that experience, oh, what a relief. How sweet, how nice, how intuitively right in terms of the wall that feels. And it really comes from embracing ordinariness. It really comes from embracing insignificance and the fact that we're all a temporary little blip. And in fact, you know, the whole solar system is going to be gone after a while. It's quite countercultural, though, because at least I remember from being a kid who lectured about how special I was. And I think that's reinforced in the age of social media. Another thing you say is you're not that special and other good news. This notion of not being special and not being more significant than anybody else is, for some, I would imagine, hard to swallow. I start the book with a quote from a friend who says, you can't have a title that's about being ordinary. Nobody wants to be ordinary. Nobody would possibly read the book, right? We do live in a bizarre time where there's this idea that ordinary or average is failure. And, you know, unless we happen to be in a certain part of, what is it, Minnesota, Lake Wobegon, where, you know, all of the women are strong, all of the men are good looking, and all of the children are above average, we're doomed because we're going to be below average half the time. And if we've got to be special, oh my God, what a painful and difficult burden that is. And as you say, social media has so amped this up. How many times do you see an Instagram a post or a Facebook post where the person's basically saying, woke up this morning, had the runs again, afraid I'm going to get a bad performance review at work, and I think my girlfriend's going to leave me, right? No, it's like, here I am at this fantastic place and with a fantastic party with curated, beautiful people, and you're not here. That's what we see all day long. You know, if we were nation states, it would be as though we're reading our own crime and poverty statistics and looking at other people's travel brochures. But this is the world of social media. And I found adolescence hard enough without social media. Just imagining what it would have been like to be alone in eighth grade or ninth grade and watching images of all my friends who were at the party that I wasn't at, or even kids who weren't my friends, but just the people at the party. Oh, the, the horrible pain of that. So it's gotten much worse. Roy Baumaster, who's studied self-esteem as an academic psychologist for years, he said, after decades of research, I'd say, forget about self-esteem, put some money into self-discipline and effort and engagement. That's a pretty good place to leave it. Before I let you go, can you please plug your book and any other books you've written and any other content you put out into the world that you think people might want to access? Well, if you're interested in exploring this further, uh, the book is The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are. There are instructions in the book on cultivating a mindfulness practice, but if you want to go more deeply into that, there's another book I wrote some time ago called The Mindfulness Solution, Everyday Practices for Everyday Problems. It's really a 
practicing psychologist look at how to apply mindfulness practices throughout your life. So those are probably the two that are most relevant to our discussion today. Ron, thank you very much for coming on. Great job. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Ron Siegel. Thanks as well to everybody who works so hard to make the show a reality. Samuel Johns, Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davy, Kim Baikama, Maria Wortel, and Jen Poyant. Also our friends over at Ultraviolet Audio who do our audio engineering. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.